our podcast, Making Sense of Science, the show that features interviews with leading experts in health and science about the latest developments and the big ethical questions. I'm your host, Kira Peacock, the editor of Leaps.org, and today we're going to take a blessed break from talking about COVID. Instead, we have something very exciting to discuss, outer space, and in particular, the planet Venus. I'm honored that our guest today is Dr. Suzanne Smrekar, the lead scientist on the upcoming NASA mission to Venus. Sue, thank you so much for joining us, and congratulations on your mission being selected by the NASA Discovery Program. Yeah, thank you so much. It's it's a huge thrill. (laughs) So tell us a little bit about yourself. How did you get into this line of work? Uh, Okay, Uh, yeah, I got interested in planetary science uh, when I was in college, it wasn't something I had any idea one could do as a career uh, until I got to college and uh, happened to be at a place that had a number of people studying planetary science. And I just took a class in geophysics and uh, decided that's what I wanted to do. And uh, since then, I, I've had the opportunity to uh, you know get involved in a uh, NASA mission as a postdoc. And you know once you are on a mission and have that thrill of discovery of seeing data come down. Um, you know, it, it's uh, just an amazing experience and I was hooked from there on. <laughs> That's so cool. I don't think a lot of people can say that they are exploring outer space for a living. Uh, it's really remarkable to get to do that. So tell our audience, Tell us a little bit about this new mission and what the goal of it is. Sure. So this mission will be an orbiter. So we will, uh, you know, fly above Venus and take global data sets. And it's really designed to try to understand why Venus, our, you know, Earth's twin planet is so different from, um, from the Earth. Uh, you know, how it got to its place of having this incredibly hellish climate, um, what its surface geology is, what processes are active, and, you know, tell us something about the history of water um, and how it may have helped shape the surface. And how long have you been working on getting this mission off the ground? Sorry for the pun. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, about 12 years now. (laughs) Okay. And what goes into something like this? So what kind of efforts do you need to do as a team um, and as a group of scientists to prepare for some undertaking this large? There are different types of missions, and our mission is a competed mission. Uh, some are directed and NASA you know, shapes the outline and assigns those missions. But ours, we had to go through a competitive process to win. Uh, so uh, this is the third time we've submitted this proposal, and it's a it's an enormous undertaking. Uh, honestly, um, we have to put together the science objectives, lay out the instruments that can meet those um, science objectives, and you know spell out in great detail why this is the right mission, the right uh, instruments, the right people. We have to basically prove to NASA that we can answer the science questions that we put out there. Um, and we have to you know, develop the plan for the, the spacecraft, the operations, everything. And uh, so it's a, you know, when we, um, when we actually submitted our most recent proposal, it was uh, 
um, 1,072 pages, uh, you know, basically the size of War and Peace. So you can imagine the effort that went into this. <laughs> wow, that's mind boggling. And what makes you so passionate about this particular mission to go to Venus? So you mentioned that Venus is our twin planet, developed so differently from Earth. It's inhospitable to um, life developing, I think, as we know it. Um, is there anything in particular that just really, as a scientist from a pure wonder and research perspective, is the most thrilling thing for you about this one? For me, the question that intrigues me the most is, essentially, how does Venus operate? You know, uh, inside the planet, you know, all of our planets, um, there's a huge kind of heat engine. And that engine makes the interior convect. It drives the surface geology. It causes, you know, the atmosphere to form by um, volcanism. And uh, it really um, uh, is, well, Venus offers this incredible opportunity to uh, study a planet that is basically, you know, our twin. It has the same interior heat engine. It's the same general composition. Um, and, you know, we have the opportunity to really understand how a different planet functions. We, on, on Earth, we have this system of plate tectonics, which has been operating for billions of years. And that has completely shaped the surface of our planet, um, our atmosphere. It appears to have been very influential in, in shaping the long-term climate and habitability of Earth. But, uh, you know, that's only one example. You know, we, we have our example of uh, life on Earth and uh, this, this system of how the planet operates. And Venus just offers us uh, the chance to discover this completely different way that planets may operate. Do you have any theories or hypotheses about why it has um, had such a different developmental journey than Earth? Well, there are, are many hypotheses about this. And right now, we don't really have the data to fully answer any of those questions and, and distinguish between the hypotheses. You know, some have proposed that maybe Venus formed with much less water. Um, and that really changes how planets evolve. It changes how the rocks deform. Obviously, it changes the atmosphere. Um, but uh, it's a hypothesis, so we can't really test right now. Um, of course, it's closer to the sun. It's it's the second planet from the sun, and that means it's got to be a little bit hotter. Uh, but um, just being closer to the sun would make it maybe 100 degrees hotter than the Earth. Right now, it's 800 degrees hotter than the Earth, Fahrenheit. So that's because of its uh, incredible dense CO2 runaway greenhouse atmosphere. Um, so, you know, uh, we don't really know how long it's had that intense atmosphere. We don't know uh, how it got there um, or, you know, basically what initiated that process of this um, massive quantities of CO2 uh, in the atmosphere. Um, you know, at some point, we think it had an ocean on the surface. And, and in fact, you know, Venus and Earth probably have similar amounts of carbon dioxide. But on, on Earth, most of our carbon dioxide is locked up in rocks, things like limestones. Uh, so we don't have this massive amount of carbon dioxide in, in our atmosphere. Uh, for some reason, uh, Venus, uh, you know, it, it seems to have had an ocean in its past, uh, but that ocean at some point was lost to, the, to space. Basically, it got too hot 
that ocean to be liquid water anymore. And at that point, uh, that kind of is thought to have initiated this uh, runaway greenhouse, where it's just more and more carbon dioxide building up, surface getting hotter and hotter. But how did we get to that point? And what are the key processes that led us to that point? Those things are um, open questions. So if a planet had a lot of light and water, uh, but it sounds like not very much atmosphere, is it possible that Venus ever did host life? Well, in fact, uh, it may have been the first planet in our solar system to at least have the conditions, you know, be, as we call it, say, habitable. Uh, so have the conditions that could have supported life. And the reason it's likely the first planet is that it's um, uh, well, closer to the sun. And early in our solar system history, the sun was actually uh, less bright than it is now. So our Earth would not have had likely enough light to have liquid water on its surface, uh, say, for the first half billion years. Uh, whereas Venus, being somewhat closer, it would have gotten warm enough to have liquid water earlier. Um, and Mercury's out because it's just too close to the sun. It is too much radiation to uh, really be habitable at its surface. So, uh, yeah, it, you know, people have come to realize that, in fact, Venus may have been the first habitable place. And the question is, uh, you know, how did it devolve from there? <laughs> so I can't help but think of certain parallels to the climate crisis that we're experiencing on Earth and our warming climate um, oceans getting hotter, and you mentioned Venus. It almost sounds like an extremely sped up version of Earth. I don't know how many, you know, hundreds or thousands or millions of years. I don't have a sense of that scale in the future. But is that a comparison that is even relevant? Yeah. So people uh, sometimes uh, think of Venus as our as the once and future Earth. Um, and will we ever get to a point? where our climate is like Venus, where, you know, the surface temperature is close to 900 degrees Fahrenheit? No, I don't think so. Um, and, you know, basically, as long as Earth retains its ocean, um, you know, that's just not going to happen on Earth. However, that doesn't mean that we can't learn a lot from studying Venus. Um, you know, it has uh, some of the same um, atmospheric gases it has, uh, you know, some real parallels that we can um, learn from. For example, uh, you know, my understanding is that the scientists who discovered Earth's ozone hole were actually studying the, the atmosphere of Venus and looking at the chemical processes in the outer, outer atmosphere of Venus. And they're like, oh, let's, let's check for this, this, these molecules on Earth. And through doing that, they discovered the ozone hole. And, you know, similarly, uh, there have been proposals in the last several years about perhaps, uh, you know, putting certain kinds of uh, sulfur molecules in the Earth's atmosphere to reduce the amount of, um, of incoming radiation and absorb some of the heat in the outer atmosphere. Um, and, uh, you know, sci again, scientists studying Venus said, hey, wait a minute, that's not going to work because we see those same molecules in the atmosphere of Venus and we know that through um, interacting with the sun, you know, photo photo um, dissociation, those basically those molecules, those sulfur molecule molecules will break down, and they're not going to hang around. So you know, to try to put something artificial into the Earth's atmosphere is just not going to work. So you know, there are, are there are a lot of similar chemical and physical processes that we can learn about that will help us, uh, you know, understand our own planet. 
Yeah, that was one question I wanted to ask you was how this mission will not just further science and knowledge for the pure sake of learning, but also actually be of use. And I think that that's one really um, great example of how you might be going on a mission to learn one thing, but learn other things in the process, like with the Apollo missions having led to the development of GPS. It seems like a similar phenomenon that when you do really big and ambitious science, you're going to learn a lot from it, even if it's not exactly what you always intended to learn, right? Sure. And, you know, uh, it's really helpful in science to have a control case, right? Because, um, you know, if we have just one experiment and we run it and we learn something, we think, oh, this is how everything works. But if you have uh, another experiment, it's like it's like doing a, a, a test for, um, you know, a, a, a drug on one person versus two people. You know, not every person reacts the same way. And similarly with planets, you know, we, we have only our Earth to try to put forward ideas and hypotheses and test things. But, uh, you know, for me, what's exciting as a planetary scientist is that as we learn things about the Earth, I try to apply that same understanding to other planets. And if it doesn't work that way in another planet, then that gives me an opportunity to learn something. There's some um, piece of information that is missing in my understanding of how planets work. Right. So going back to this mission in particular, um, will the orbiter be just going around um, Venus in space or do you plan to land it on the surface? We will not land on the surface. Um, you know, uh, that's challenging because of the um, 900 degree temperature. But uh, basically, we can learn a vast amount of information from space. And what we really want to do is get the global picture of Venus. So, um, you know, there was a mission to study the, the surface of Venus 30 years ago, one of NASA's early missions. Uh, we have come a long, long way in terms of the instrumentation that we can apply to study Venus from orbit. Um, we, we're going to make 3D uh, maps of the topography. Right now, the, the resolution is uh, about 20 kilometers for the topography. And uh, we'll be able to do you know, tours of magnitude better. We'll be have um, you know, pixels that are like 250-meter pixels. So you know, for the island of Hawaii, the resolution that we have now is about 20 pixels. And, uh, you know, we'll have uh, thousands of pixels and we'll be able to see really what's going on with the geology. The, the, um, we can see volcanic calderas, we can see faults, we can see individual lava flows. So we're just going to see an entirely different picture of Venus, both by looking at topography and looking at radar imaging. Um, and we're going to make the very first maps of surface composition. We didn't even actually think that we could do that in the past because Venus has this thick cloud layer. But um, through some, uh, you know, lucky uh, accidents with uh, past missions, we've determined that we can actually see through the atmosphere in a few specific wavelengths. And with that, we can map out, um, you know, the general rock types we see on the surface of Venus, which will give us a lot of insight into, you know, not only uh, the geologic processes, but also um, we'll be looking for the chemical fingerprint of past water. That's very cool. And so the mission is set to launch in 2028, right? Yes, it may actually go in in uh, 27, but uh, somewhere around that time. And what is your team doing to prepare for the next six or seven years for this? 
Well, uh, right now we are busy replanning our mission because NASA did ask us to go a bit later than we had originally hoped. Um, so we're looking at the different opportunities to get to uh, Venus in that time frame. We're uh, determining whether or not we can carry out all the same science in the same time timeline. So uh, right now we're in the kind of the uh, replan process, but we uh, hope to close on that uh, very soon and then uh, get down to the business of um, you know, planning uh, the build. We, we go through different phases where we initially refine all of our, our plans, our requirements, making sure everything is going to work together. And then the next phase is to start actually building hardware. So that's when, uh, you know, things and get super real. So how big is this orbiter that you're going to launch into space? It's about, um, the spacecraft part itself is about... Um, 10 feet tall, about six feet to square, but it has an enormous wingspan. <laughs> the, uh, the solar arrays uh, stretch out uh, for a total of about uh, uh, 60, um, well, no, sorry. Yeah, 60 feet, 20 meters. So it's so about 60 wow. feet across. So uh, it's, it's huge once it deploys its solar arrays. You know, those solar arrays are all tucked up inside in, as the rocket launches. But uh, as soon as we um, get outside of the, the rocket and we get outside that, um, that capsule, it, it, it peels away and lets us uh, float freely. We unfurl our solar rays and uh, you know, we'll head off to Venus. That's so exciting. So, um, and you're the principal investigator for this mission. So what does that mean for your day-to-day -day job once this uh, actually launches? What is that like for someone who's in charge of a, an outer space mission? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, uh, it's really fun. I get to do just a whole range of different things on a daily basis. Um, you know, I will um, meet with the engineering team. I'll meet with the science team. I'll meet with um, our communications team. Um, you know, there's all different pieces that have to come together to uh, make this mission work. And, you know, we, we meet with our representatives at NASA headquarters to make sure that we're all communicating, we're all on the same page. So, uh, there's a lot of meeting that goes on. There's a lot of uh, writing uh, of, um, you know, both documents to, to convey to the public and uh, scientific papers. Um, and we're starting to, uh, you know, reach out to the other Venus missions that have been selected uh, recently, too, to try to understand how we can, you know, even improve on and build a, uh, even better science plans. So given that um, this is publicly funded, and I, I believe it was around $500 million for the mission, right? Yes. I imagine that having public support for this is really key to the broader picture here. Sure. Yeah. I mean, uh, NASA and um, scientists in general are, you know, dependent on public funding. And absolutely, we have to uh, do our best to convey the value of these missions, the excitement of these missions, to uh, reach out to people um, from, you know, a huge array of backgrounds and uh, let them know that they are welcome and, um, you know, really that we need people to um, come and work on these missions. That's great. And, you know, there's here at Leaps.org, we're fascinated and inspired by scientists of all stripes, whether it's biomedical researchers, space researchers, climate researchers. Um, but there, there is a segment of the public that I think is, especially with outer space, while it's very exciting and, um, you know, 
taps into that sense of wonder that we all feel when we kind of look up at the stars, there is a sense of whether this amount of money for scientific research being publicly funded, could it be used more to address problems directly that we have, um, like climate or COVID? What, what are your thoughts on that when you hear that kind of thing? Well, uh, you know, I have a bunch of thoughts, actually. Um, for one, uh, climate change is a huge problem. Some, you know, many people would say our number one problem addressing humanity uh, or face that humanity is facing right now. Um, and as a planetary scientist, yes, I'm not studying that directly, but it does. But by studying other planets, especially Venus, which is so much like our, like our own Earth and has so many lessons, we really do. Um, challenge our understanding of how climate works, how planets work, uh, how things have evolved in the long term. Those are all things that are relevant to understanding climate change on Earth. And sometimes it is valuable to have that big picture view. Um, and, you know, there have been direct contributions to people uh, studying climate on the Earth. There, there have been uh, workshops and joint meetings uh, between uh, climate scientists studying Venus, Earth, and Mars. And th those do lead to important insights. So there is, you know, for, for Venus, there is some direct application. Uh, but in addition, you know, uh, studying, studying the stars, uh, studying the planets, uh, and, you know, some more obscure aspects of science, perhaps there, uh, you know, just is a role for inspiring people to think beyond our own planet and, um, you know, really reach out to the limits of what we understand about our place in the universe, our place in the solar system. So there's an aspect of it that's uh, more along the lines of uh, art, philosophy, music. So there are, um, there are two sides of why people should care, in my view. <laughs> I think that makes a lot of sense. What is your expectation or hope for the future of human interplanetary exploration? I know that what you're working on is not a human spaceflight, but just curious to get your take on it with the, the trend of these billionaires going up into space and the SpaceX rocket that just launched the civilians into space. What do you think is the future of humans in space? Well, um, I, I am biased towards robots. <laughs> because they uh, are really good at carrying out the kind of science that uh, really compels me. But uh, again, you know, is there a place for humans in space? And I, I think it really um, often comes down to this idea of inspiring people. And, you know, people are fascinated with the ability to uh, reach beyond our own planet in, in a very, uh, you know, physical and, and personal way. And so, Again, I, I think it's, um, to me, the, the biggest value from that kind of um, foray into, fit, into space is uh, to inspire us. So if you ever got a chance to go up on one of these civilian rockets, would you do it? You bet. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Sure, I would. It would be fun. Uh, you know, I uh, certainly wanted to be an astronaut when I was uh, younger I went down a different path and uh, yeah, it would be amazing. <laughs> and while I have you, I know we have to wrap up fairly soon. It's been a real honor to be able to speak with you. 
one of those questions that people have wondered for time immemorial is when we look up at the sky, is there something out there like us or even just even a very primitive form of life? Um, what are your thoughts on that? Uh, I think that there must be other forms of life, whatever they are, I think they must exist out there. And, you know, one of the reasons that uh, people are so interested in studying Venus right now is the fact that we're finding hundreds of Earth-sized planets around other stars, these exoplanets. Um, are they likely to be like Venus or Earth? You know, uh, we, we have very little information about them. Uh, but people want to know, are they habitable? What's the chance that uh, life might have evolved on those planets? And by studying uh, Venus and trying to understand the dichotomy between these two twin planets, I believe we'll get a, a huge insight into what makes a planet habitable. Do you think we'll ever reach them with any sort of our technology in the next century? Well, um, who, who would have imagined what we're doing now <laughs> a century ago? Not Maybe a few people, but most people did not. So uh, we don't really have the right technology now, but people are definitely studying those concepts of how to uh, travel to another star. And so, um, you know, I, I hope that we will, but uh, I, I can envision it myself right now. <laughs> well... Hopefully the next set of bright, eager, young scientists who maybe they're even listening right now will be inspired by you and your colleagues and your team and your missions and will take us even further than we've ever gone. I'm sure they will. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you, Sue. Best of luck with the mission. We'll be following it when the time comes um, later this decade and hope it's a huge success. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. All right. And thanks for everyone listening to Making Sense of Science. Follow us on Instagram and our website, leaps.org, to find out more. See you next time.